Chapter 4, Part 2 of Apologia Pro Vita Sua by John Henry Cardinal Newman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bill McGillivray. While my old and true friends were thus in trouble about me, I suppose they felt not only anxiety but pain to see that I was gradually surrendering myself to the influence of others who had not their own claims upon me, younger men, and of a cast of mind in no small degree uncongenial to my own. A new school of thought was rising, as is usual in doctrinal inquiries, and was sweeping the original party of the movement aside, and was taking its place. The most prominent person in it was a man of elegant genius, of classical mind, of rare talent in literary composition, Mr. Oakley. He was not far from my own age. I had long known him, though of late years he had not been in residence at Oxford, and quite lately he has been taking several signal occasions of renewing that kindness which he ever showed towards me when we were both in the Anglican Church. His tone of mind was not unlike that which gave a character to the early movement. He was almost a typical Oxford man, and as far as I recollect, both in political and ecclesiastical views, would have been of one spirit with the Oriel party of 1826-1833. But he had entered late into the movement. He did not know its first years. And beginning with a new start, he was naturally thrown together with the body of eager, acute, resolute minds who had begun their Catholic life about the same time as he. He knew nothing about the Via Media, but had heard much about Rome. This new party rapidly formed and increased in and out of Oxford, and, as it so happened, contemporaneously with that very summer, when I received so serious a blow to my ecclesiastical views from the study of the Monophysite controversy. These men cut into the original movement at an angle, fell across its line of thought, and then set about turning that line in its own direction. They were most of them keenly religious men, with a true concern for their souls as the first matter of all, with a great zeal for me, but giving little certainty at the time as to which way they could ultimately turn. Some in the event had remained firm to Anglicanism, some have become Catholics, and some have found a refuge in liberalism. Nothing was clearer concerning them than that they needed to be kept in order, and on me, who had had so much to do with the making of them, that duty was as clearly incumbent, and it is equally clear, from what I have already said, that I was just the person, above all others, who could not undertake it. There are no friends like old friends, but of those old friends, few could help me, few could understand me, many were annoyed with me, some were angry, because I was breaking up a compact party, and some, as a matter of conscience, could not listen to me. When I looked around for those whom I might consult in my difficulties, I found the very hypothesis of those difficulties acting as a bar to their giving me their advice. Then I said bitterly, You are throwing me on others, whether I will or no. Yet still I had good and true friends around me, of the old sort, in and out of Oxford too, who were a great help to me, but on the other hand, though I neither was so fond, with a few exceptions, of the persons nor of the methods of thought which belonged to this new school, as of the old set, 
though I could not trust in their firmness of purpose, for, like a swarm of flies, they might come and go, and at length be divided and dissipated, yet I had an intense sympathy in their object and in the direction in which their path lay, in spite of my old friends, in spite of my old lifelong prejudices. In spite of my ingrained fears of Rome, and the decision of my reason and conscience against her usage, in spite of my affection for Oxford and Oriel, yet I had a secret longing love of Rome, the mother of English Christianity, and I had true devotion to the Blessed Virgin in whose college I lived, whose altar I served, and whose immaculate purity I had in one of my earliest printed sermons made much of. And it was the consciousness of this bias in myself, if it is so to be called, which made me preach so earnestly against the danger of being swayed in religious inquiry by our sympathy rather than by our reason. And, moreover, the members of this new school looked up to me, as I have said, and did me true kindness, and really loved me, and stood by me in trouble, when others went away, and for all this I was grateful. Nay, many of them were in trouble themselves, and in the same boat with me, and that was a further cause of sympathy between us, and hence it was, when the new school came on in force, and into collision with the old, I had not the heart, any more than the power, to repel them. I was in great perplexity, and hardly knew where I stood. I took their part, and, when I wanted to be in peace and silence, I had to speak out, and I incurred the charge of weakness from some men, and of my mysteriousness, shuffling, and underhand dealing from the majority. Now I will say here frankly that this sort of charge is a matter which I cannot properly meet, because I cannot duly realize it. I have never had any suspicion of my own honesty, and when men say I was dishonest, I cannot grasp the accusation as a distinct conception, such as it is possible to encounter. If a man said to me, on such a day and before such persons, you said a thing was white when it was black, I understand what is meant well enough, and I can set myself to prove an alibi or to explain the mistake. Or if a man said to me, you tried to gain me over to your party, intending to take me with you to Rome, but you did not succeed, I can give him the lie, and lay down an assertion of my own, as firm and as exact as his, that not from the time that I was first unsettled did I ever attempt to gain any one over to myself or to my Romanizing opinions, and that it is only his own copsicomical fancy which has bred such a thought in him. But my imagination is at a loss in pretense of those vague charges which have been commonly brought up against me, charges which are made up of impressions and understandings and inferences and hearsay and surmises. Accordingly, I shall not make the attempt, for, in doing so, I should be dealing blows in the air. What I shall attempt is to state what I know of myself and what I recollect, and leave to others its application. While I had confidence in the via media, and thought that nothing could overset it, I did not mind laying down large principles which I saw would go further than was commonly perceived. I consider that to make the via media concrete and substantive, it must be much more than it was in outline, 
that the anglican church must have a ceremonial a ritual and a fullness of doctrine and devotion which it had not at present if it were to compete with the roman church with any prospect of success such addition would not remove it from its proper basis but would merely strengthen and beautify it such for instance would be confraternities particular devotions reverences for the blessed virgin prayers for the dead beautiful churches munificent offerings to them and in them monastic houses and many other observances and institutions which i used to say belonged to us as much as to rome though rome had appropriated them and boasted of them by reason of our having let them slip from us the principle on which all this turned i brought out in one of the letters i published on occasion of tract ninety the age is moving i said towards something and most unhappily the one religious communion among us which has of late years been practically in possession of this something is the church of rome she alone amid all the errors and evils of her practical system has given free scope to the feelings of awe mystery tenderness reverence devotedness and other feelings which may be especially called catholic the question then is whether we shall give them up to the roman church or claim them for ourselves but if we do give them up we must give up the men who cherish them we must consent either to give up the men or to admit their principles with these feelings i frankly admit that while i was working simply for the sake of the anglican church i did not at all mind though i found myself lying down principles in its defence which went beyond that particular kind of defence which high and dry men thought perfection and even though i ended in framing a kind of defence which they might call a revolution while i thought it a restoration thus for illustration i might discourse upon the communion of saints in such a manner though i do not recollect doing so as might lead the way towards devotion to the blessed virgin and the saints on the one hand and towards prayers for the dead on the other in a memorandum in the year eighteen forty four or eighteen forty five i thus speak on this subject if the church be not defended on establishment grounds it must be upon principles which go far beyond their immediate object sometimes i saw these further results sometimes not though i saw them i sometimes did not say that i saw them so long as i thought they were inconsistent not with our church but only with the existing opinions i was not unwilling to insinuate truth into our church which i thought had a right to be there to so much i confess but i do not confess i simply deny that i ever said anything which secretly bore against the church of england knowing it myself in order that others might unwarily accept it it was indeed one of my great difficulties and causes of reserve as time went on that i at length recognized in principles which i had honestly preached as if anglican conclusions favorable to the cause of rome of course i did not like to confess this and when interrogated was in consequence in perplexity the prime instance of this was the appeal to antiquity st leo had overset in my own judgment its force as the special argument for anglicanism yet i was committed to antiquity together with the whole anglican school what then was i to say 
when acute minds urged this or that application of it against the via media it was impossible that in such circumstances any answer could be given which was not unsatisfactory or any behavior adopted which was not mysterious again sometimes in what i wrote i went just as far as i saw and could as little say more as i could see what is below the horizon and therefore when asked as to the consequence of what i had said i had no answer to give again sometimes when i was asked whether certain conclusions did not follow from a certain principle i might not be able to tell at the moment especially if the matter were complicated and for this reason if for no other because there is great differences between a conclusion in the abstract and a conclusion in the concrete and because a conclusion may be modified in fact by a conclusion from some opposite principle or it might so happen that my head got simply confused by the very strength of the logic which was administered to me and thus i gave my sanction to conclusions which really were not mine and when the report of those conclusions came round to me through others i had to unsay them and then again perhaps i did not like to see men scared or scandalized by unfeeling logical inferences which would not have troubled them to the day of their death had they not been forced to recognize them and then i felt altogether the force of the maxim of st ambrose non in dialectica complicuit deo salvum farce populum suum i had a great dislike of paper logic for myself it was not logic that carried me on as well might one say that the quicksilver in the barometer changes the weather it is a concrete being that reasons pass a number of years and i find my mind in a new place how the whole man moves paper logic is but the record of it all the logic in the world would not have made me move faster toward rome than i did as well as might you say that i have arrived at the end of my journey because i see the village church before me as venture to assert that the miles over which my soul had to pass before it got to rome could be annihilated even though i had been in possession of some far clearer view than i had that rome was my ultimate destination great acts take time at least this is what i felt in my own case and therefore to come to me with methods of logic had in it the nature of a provocation and though i do not think i ever showed it made me somewhat indifferent how i met them and perhaps led me as a means of relieving my impatience to be mysterious or irrelevant or to give in because i could not meet them to my satisfaction and a greater trouble still than these logical mazes was the introduction of logic into every subject whatever so far that is as this was done before i was at oriel i recollect an acquaintance saying to me that the oriel common room stank of logic one is not at all pleased when poetry or eloquence or devotion is considered as if chiefly intended to feed syllogisms now in saying all this i am saying nothing against the deep piety and earnestness which were characteristic of this second phase of the movement in which i had taken so prominent a part what i have been observing is that this phase had a tendency to bewilder and to upset me and that instead of saying so 
as i ought to have done perhaps from a sort of laziness i gave answer at random which have led to my appearing close or inconsistent i have turned up two letters of this period which in a measure illustrates what i have been saying the first was written to the bishop of oxford on occasion of tract ninety march twentieth eighteen forty one no one can enter into my situation but myself i see a great many minds working in various directions and a variety of principles with multiplied bearings i act for the best i sincerely think that matters would not have gone better for the church had i never written and if i write i have a choice of difficulties it is easy for those who do not enter into those difficulties to say he ought to say this and not say that but things are wonderfully linked together and i cannot or rather i would not be dishonest when persons too interrogate me i am obliged in many cases to give an opinion or i seem to be underhand keeping silence looks like artifacts and i do not like people to consult or respect me from thinking differently of my opinion from what i know them to be and again to use the proverb what is one man's food is another man's poison all these things make my situation very difficult but that collision must at some time ensue between members of the church of opposite sentiments i have long been aware the time and mode has been in the hand of providence i do not mean to exclude my own great imperfections in bringing it about yet i still feel obliged to think the tract necessary the second is taken from the notes of a letter which i sent to dr pusey in the next year october sixteenth eighteen forty two as to my being entirely with ward i do not know the limits of my own opinions if ward says that this or that is a development from which i have said i cannot say yes or no it is plausible it may be true of course the fact that the roman church has so developed and maintained adds great weight to the antecedent plausibility i cannot assert that it is not true but i cannot with that keen perception which some people have appropriated it it is a nuisance to me to be forced beyond what i can fairly accept there was another source of the perplexity with which at this time i was encompassed and the reserve and mysteriousness of which that perplexity gained for me the credit after tract ninety the protestant world would not let me alone they pursued me in the public journals to littlemore reports of all kinds were circulated about me imprimis why did i go up to littlemore at all for no good purpose certainly i did not tell why why to be sure it was hard that i should be obliged to say to the editors of newspapers that i went up there to say my prayers it was hard to have to tell the world in confidence that i had a certain doubt about the anglican system and could not at that moment resolve it or say what could come of it it was hard to have to confess that i had thought of giving up my living a year or two before and that this was a first step to it it was hard to have to plead that for what i knew my doubts would vanish if the newspapers would be so good as to give me time and let me alone who would ever dream of making the world his confidant yet i was considered insidious sly dishonest if i would not open my heart to the tender mercies of the world but they persisted what was i doing at littlemore doing there have i not retreated from you 
have i not given up my position and my place am i alone of englishmen not to have the privilege to go where i will no questions asked am i alone to be followed about by jealous prying eyes which take note whether i go in at a back door or at the front and who the men are who happen to call on me in the afternoon cowards if i advanced one step you would run away it is not you that i fear dimi terrent et jupiter hostis it is because the bishops still go on charging against me though i have quite given up it is that secret misgivings of heart which tells me that they do well for i have neither lot nor part with them this it is which weighs me down i cannot walk into or out of my house but curious eyes are upon me why will you not let me die in peace wounded brutes creep into some hole to die in and no one grudges at them let me alone i shall not trouble you long this was the keen feeling which pierced me and i think these are the very words in which i expressed it to myself i asked in the words of a great motto ubi lapsus quid feci one day when i entered my house i found a flight of undergraduates inside heads of houses as mounted patrols walked their horses around those poor cottages doctors of divinity divided into the hidden recesses of that private tenement uninvited and drew domestic conclusions from what they saw there i had thought that an englishman's house was his castle but the newspapers thought otherwise and at last the matter came before my good bishop i insert his letter and a portion of my reply to him april twelfth eighteen forty two so many of the charges against yourself and your friends which i have seen in the public journals have been with my own knowledge false and calumnious that i am not apt to pay much attention to what is asserted with respect to you in the newspapers in a newspaper however on april ninth there appears a paragraph in which it is asserted as a matter of notoriety that a so-called anglo-catholic monastery is in process of erection at littlemore and that the cells of dormitories the chapel the refectory the cloister all may be seen advancing to perfection under the eye of a parish priest of the diocese of oxford now as i have understood that you really are possessed of some tenement at littlemore as it is generally believed that you are destined for the purposes of study and devotion and as much suspicion and jealousies are felt about the matter i am anxious to afford you an opportunity of making me an explanation on the subject i know you too well not to be aware that you are the last man living to attempt in my diocese a revival of the monastic orders in anything approaching to the romanist sense of the term without previous communications with me or indeed that you should take upon yourself to originate any measure of importance without authority from the heads of the church and therefore i at once exonerate you from the accusations brought against you by the newspaper i have quoted but i feel it nevertheless a duty to my diocese and myself as well as to you to ask you to put it in my power to contradict what if uncontradicted would appear to imply a glaring invasion of all ecclesiastical discipline on your part or of inexcusable neglect and indifference to my duties on mine i wrote an answer as follows april fourteenth eighteen forty two 
I am very much obliged by your lordship's kindness in allowing me to write to you on the subject of my house at Littlemore. At the same time, I feel it hard both on your lordship and myself that the restlessness of the public mind should oblige you to require an explanation of me. It is now a whole year that I have been the subject of incessant misrepresentation, a year since I submitted entirely to your lordship's authority, and with the intention of following out the particular acts enjoyed upon me, I not only stopped the series of tracts on which I was engaged, but withdrew from all public discussion of church matters of the day, or what may be called ecclesiastical politics. I turned myself at once to the preparation for the press of the translations of St. Athanasius, to which I had long wished to devote myself, and I intended and intend to employ myself in the like theological studies, and in the concerns of my own parish, and in practical works. With the same view of personal improvement, I was led more seriously to a design which had long been on my mind. For many years, at least thirteen, I have wished to give myself to a life of greater religious regularity than I have hitherto led, but it is very unpleasant to confess such a wish even to my bishop, because it seems arrogant, and because it is committing me to a profession which may come to nothing. For what have I done that I am to be called to account by the world for my private actions, in a way in which no one else is called? Why may I not have that liberty, which all others are allowed? I am often accused of being underhand and uncandid in respect to the intentions to which I have been alluding, but no one likes his own good resolutions noised about, both from mere common delicacy and from fear lest he should not be able to fulfill them. I feel it very cruel, though the parties in fault do not know what they are doing, that very sacred matter between me and my conscience are made a matter of public talk. May I take a case parallel, though different? Suppose a person in prospect of marriage, would he like the subject discussed in newspapers, and parties, circumstances, etc., etc., publicly demanded of him, at the penalty of being accused of craft and duplicity? The resolution I speak of has been taken with reference to myself alone, and has been contemplated quite independent of the cooperation of any other human being, and without reference to success or failure, other than personal, and without regard to the blame or appropriation of man. And being a resolution of years, and one to which I feel God has called me, and in which I am violating no rule of the church any more than if I married, I should have to answer for it, if I did not pursue it, as a good providence made opening for it. In pursuing it then, I am thinking of myself alone, not aiming at any ecclesiastical or external effects. At the same time, of course, it would be a great comfort to me to know that God had put into the hearts of others to pursue their personal edification in the same way, and unnatural not to wish to have the benefits of their presence and encouragement, or not to think it a great infringement on their rights of conscience, if such personal and private resolutions were interfered with. Your Lordship will allow me to add my firm conviction that such religious resolutions are most necessary for keeping a certain class of mind firm in the allegiance of our Church. But still I can as truly say that my own reason for anything I have done has been a personal one, 
without which I should not have entered upon it, and which I hope to pursue whether with or without the sympathies of others pursuing a similar course. As to my intentions, I propose to live there myself a good deal, as I have a resident curate in Oxford. In doing this, I believe I am consulting for the good of my parish, as my population at Littlemore is at least equal to that of St. Mary's in Oxford, and the whole of Littlemore is double of it. It has been very much neglected, and in providing a parsonage house at Littlemore, as this will be, and will be called, I conceive I am doing a very great benefit to my people. At the same time, it has appeared to me that a partial or temporary retirement from St. Mary's Church might be expedient under the prevailing excitement. As to the quotation from the newspaper, which I have not seen, your Lordship will perceive from what I have said that no monastery is in process of erection. There is no chapel, no refectory, hardly a dining-room or parlour. The cloisters are my shed connecting the cottages. I do not understand what cells of dormitories means. Of course I can repeat your lordship's words that I am not attempting a revival of the monastic orders in anything approaching to the Romanist sense of the term, or taking on myself to originate any measure of importance without authority from the heads of the church. I am attempting nothing ecclesiastical, but something personal and private, and which can only be made public, not private, by newspapers and letter-writers, in which sense the most sacred and conscientious resolves and acts may certainly be made the objects of an unmannerly and unfeeling curiosity. End of chapter 4, part 2